We are divided as a country when it comes to whether it is considered an insult to be described as woke. Isn't being woke just being self-aware? It is about having self-awareness of your behaviors and the impact of your behaviors. And so (laughs) when we come back to the word woke, Mm. what does that feel like internally? What is the essence of the word? It's truly an opening of the heart Mm. and tuning into what is present in the moment. Mm -hmm. No right or wrong, just what is the experience in the moment? How do you contend with this as the head of people at 15.5? How do you honor heart-centeredness while trying to make sure that the investors are getting their money's worth after getting $50 million? I came across this article that was talking about corrosive downward pressure. And I realized that that, that's what toxic work environments are. And so for me, realizing like, oh, like psychological safety is really the lack of corrosive downward pressure. I'm Jenny Yang. Belonging to me means one's felt sense of being part of a whole. What that looks like can be this felt sense of inclusion, a felt sense of being seen, of being heard, of being valued, and loved. So we met back in 2018 at 15.5. And at the time, you were the head of people then as well. And I think we just started connecting and chatting. And, and, and what came out of the conversation was that you were at NLP Marin, and I got so excited. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Talk a little bit more about what NLP Marin is and, and how you found your way there. Mm-hmm. So NLP Marin is a school a training institute around neuro-linguistic programming. And um, the teacher, uh, the main guide there is Carl Buquet. And um, Carl has brought this really transformational element to NLP Marin. So he calls it TNLP, Transformational Mm -hmm. Neuro-Linguistic Programming. And what this is is really the study of our neurology, our brain, Mm -hmm. and what... um, how our brain processes the experiences that we have as humans through all of our five senses Mm -hmm. and what memories can get imprinted into our brain um, through these experiences and through our own family lineage and their experiences. So it's really powerful work in the sense that anytime that you as a human want to get from point A to point B, there's likely something blocking you in the way and it's likely a limiting belief. And so what NLP does is it goes in and really examines that limiting belief and works with it to understand how you might shift it to a new belief set or a mindset or a heart set to Mm. be able to get to point B. I've never heard heart set before. That is so beautiful. And I think I I have to steal that. One of the things that Carl does so beautifully is he also weaves in something called family constellation. Um, This is a framework that was 
brought forth, shall we say, by Bert Hellinger, who's no longer with us. It was a framework that he kind of put together after living with the Zulu tribe um, and kind of starting to really understand um, how they honor those who had schizophrenia or bipolar and how that community really um, revered those individuals and felt that they brought so much information and insight and perspicacity to the community. How have you connected with Family Constellation? How have you found that of value, if at all? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I've participated in a few family constellation exercises and workshops. And um, needless to say, um, the experience can be extremely woo-woo. <laughs> <laughs> to say I the least. Go, I won't go into describe the exact <laughs> mechanics of how a family constellation works. You can always YouTube it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> At least the NLP Marin style one. And um, the essence of the work is to identify what patterns are running through whom within mm. a family system. So if you think about a family, right, you you as you, you have your parents and then your parents have their parents and then those parents have those parents. And so it's effectively looking back at this family tree to understand where is this limiting belief rooted from? Like when mm. did it get rooted into the system? Um, Rajkumari, I know you're an expert in epigenetics, and so I see a lot of correlation between family mm. constellations and epigenetics, given that yeah. these patterns can be running through seven generations. And so how yeah. might we unpack that and really effectively intervene? You know, I, the word that's coming up for me is possibly stop those belief patterns, but really it's more about intervening and creating more understanding about why those belief patterns were in place and then being able to integrate that into a new way of believing and thinking. I want to connect this back to belonging. And I want to bring this into organizations. One of the things that is foundational about Family Constellation work is something you mentioned earlier in our pre-conversation, the um, suffering obligations of love. Now, we as children are born into a family, whether they are our biological family, adopted family, primary caregivers, whatever, and we learn belonging innately, intrinsically. We learn the rules the, the ways in which to show up in our family dynamic. How do we take and understand and untangle the suffering obligations of love when they show up in the workplace mm. and they start to create incredible dysfunction that impacts our ability to communicate with each other, that impacts our ability to collaborate with each other, and honestly, to execute on the OKRs. Mm -hmm. So Rajkumar, you're bringing up such a fascinating point here. I am a firm believer that whatever beliefs or patterns that the CEO and executive team have mm. running, it becomes a mirror reflection mm. and a fractal representation onto the organization. And so the way you put it 
I think when we were talking a few years ago was, you know, you have a cup and then you've you have, remember this? I do remember oh you've got a cup and you've got your CEO. They pour in, you know, a little bit of their juice. <laughs> I am stunned that you remember this. Wow. Yeah. I have to be careful what I say in the world. Well, well, it was a beautiful metaphor where it's like, yeah, everyone's mixing up their juice and their water and then it becomes muck. Yeah. Because everyone's got their shit that they're bringing yeah. and projecting yes. onto the workplace. Even when they leave. Mm. Right? After they poured their substance into that cup and they're laid off, they're, they, they quit, they, they move on, that culture, that cup is still muddied, as you said, with their legacy. Mm-hmm. So who you hire, who you bring into that cup is very, very critical. Mm-hmm. And how you start to vet that hiring process. I, I want to come back to, you, you had said heart set. Uh, something, I, I just, I can't get over this term. It is so beautiful. It's, it's actually bringing up so much emotion for me. When we think about humans in a workplace who come to work every day with their hearts, whether they're aware of it or not, but they prioritize their expertise, their competence, right? And we as leaders demand that they prioritize their expertise and their competence. How do we start to even integrate or balance that mindset with the heart set? Mm, What a great question. Well, you and I were talking about the patriarchy in our pre-conversation and the impacts of... (laughs) Minor detail. (laughs) Small topic. (laughs) (laughs) The impacts of of, um, the patriarchy, particularly when it comes to do, 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 right? There's Mm. this element of production and productivity Mm. and needing to produce, right? Mm. And a lot of it comes from the mind. You know, I think that's why so many humans nowadays have mental ailments is because we are taught and socialized to think, 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 overanalyze, and we're not taught the tools early on in childhood. I I, I need to, I'm so sorry. I have to pause you. Because say that again, so many ailments come from mental health issues because of the do, do, do? Capitalism is all about production and revenue, more, 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 right? And it's about the outcomes, about the revenue. And I think the challenge for humans has been the striving towards that, right? And comparison of, oh, if I'm not at X revenue by this time frame, then mm-hmm. I'm a failure, right? And really, there's a lot of companies that don't make it. And we just hear the stories of the companies that do make it, right? So there is this um, yearning of success defined by what that looks like of whether it's, you know, going um, public or if it's reaching X amount of revenue. And so much of that stress, right, leads to physical ailments, mental ailments, um, you know, just extreme stress. And it takes its toll on our being. You 
are a company that just got, just being, I think, earlier this year, some pretty significant funding. Can you disclose that amount? Yes. So it was um, last summer. So that would have been 2022. And it was a 50 million round at CBC. Yep, absolutely. How do you honor the investment, the valuation of that round of funding with what you just said? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's tremendous pressure to perform. Um, and really, as an executive on sitting on the executive team, there are ways in which, especially as the people leader of a team, you know, I want to ensure that we're maximizing the performance of the collective. I want to ensure that I'm maximizing the performance of my team, um, the executive team, as well as the people team. Um, and at the same time, preserve um, their well being. You know, I think for me, what's really important is sustainable high performance mm. and ensuring wow. that what impact looks like what exceptional impact looks like is mm. clearly defined and agreed upon from myself with my individual team members so that you know whenever their performance assessment comes around that they understand hey exceptional impact looks like these behaviors and it looks like these results and then i know i am high performing so there's no you know stone unturned What's the definition of sustainable high performance, and what are some what are some examples that 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 of the behaviors and ways we show up that that align with what what you do at fifteen five? Yeah, so to me, sustainable high performance looks like being able to perform your best work in these conditions that allow you to show up as your best self as well. So there's a lot of elements that go into that. Personally, I believe that um, in order for people to perform their best work, they need to be in an environment where they feel psychologically safe. Mm -hmm. They need to feel seen, heard, and valued. <laughs> and so that's a key component is psychological safety. Right. Then another component to sustainable high performance is a focus on the whole person, uh, the focus on someone's mental and emotional capacity. You know, we were talking about mindsets and heart sets and the impacts of executives. And, you know, I think about the role of a leader, of a leader who really prioritizes belonging is someone who is going to meet someone where they are, mm. is someone who is going to actually listen and yeah. be present with their team yeah. members and help them move through their roadblocks, whether, whether they're prof professional or personal. You say that recently you came across a definition of psychological safety that resonated very deeply with you. And I am so fascinated by this sentence that you use as your definition of psychological safety, the lack of corrosive downward pressure. <sighs> wow. I, I, I want to go down a, a whole tangent here, but I want you to just to respond to that first. When I was doing research several months ago, I came across this article that was talking about 
you know, corrosive downward pressure. And I realized that that that's what toxic work environments are, is when you feel the corrosive downward pressure coming from the board to the executive team to senior yep. leaders down to, you know, manage frontline managers and individual contributors. And yep. and so for me, realizing like, oh, like psychological safety is really the lack of corrosive downward pressure. If capitalism is about extraction, if capitalism is about production, how much can I get out of this? Where is there room for psychological safety? That's a valid question. And it has to be a priority from the executive team. They, they want to have both and. It's a paradigm of both and. Nice. Of let's be a high-performing organization and have I care for our people. That's been the essence of the work that I've been nice. doing with 15.5 since 2018 is how might we have both and where not only can our people thrive and when our people thrive, our business thrives, right? Tony Shea, who is the former CEO of Zappos, who left us sadly in 2018, I believe it was, says uh, there's a quote uh, from him on one of the walls in the Zappos campus that says, what's the ROI of hugging your mom? Mm. Um, gosh, looking at you, rea you react to that makes me want to tear up. It's, it's, such a powerful, it's such a powerful question because there is no ROI to hugging your mom. There is, no, there is no ROI when I call my mom in all of the tension we've had over the years. All of the fights, all the times we stopped talking because she said the most annoying, insensitive, hurtful thing. And then I pick up the phone and I hear her voice after 52 years. And I melt every time. <sighs> I'm getting a little teary-eyed too as I think about my three-year-old and yeah. our relationship and his attachment, my attachment with one another. Mama is the container for being held, right? Uh, or is, is the container um, where we are held. Wow. And yeah, I mean, yeah, what is the ROI of hugging your mom? I mean, it's, you can't define it. You can't quantify it. It's timeless. You know, I think a lot of organizational effectiveness depends on your managers. And so many managers are incompetent. Wow. I have so many questions. Um, first off, let's just start really easy. Why are most managers incompetent? <laughs> well, a lot of times people become managers um, after they have been high-performing individual contributors. Yeah. They don't have any manager training. Um, they frequently, and I, I experienced this myself when I first transitioned to being a manager, where I was projecting my own expectations of myself and my high standards of myself onto my team members. Right. And so there's an element of a psychological shift when you become a manager that doesn't turn on on day one. Yeah. And um, yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes managers just don't care. They might not have the right motivation to actually be a strong manager. How do we start to cultivate first-time managers in a way that 
brings them to a level of engagement that benefits the company and the workforce. Mm -hmm. Honestly, it really starts with committing to their own professional development of wanting and having the desire to wake up in the morning and say, I want to positively impact other people's lives. Personally, I have had a lot of shitty managers mm. and I've had some really strong managers. And those mm. strong managers have left this imprint on me to wanna have that impact on my team members. And so when I think about the role of a manager, it's really committing to having self-awareness around the impacts of my own behavior, of what behavior is inclusionary versus exclusion, exclusionary. What mm -hmm. impact is lift, uh, what behavior is lifting up this person versus bringing them down? And so there is this element of needing to be dedicated to self-awareness and shifting behaviors individually to each team member of how they would like to receive feedback or how they would like to be treated or how they would like to be recognized. You had mentioned that at NLP Marin, the particular type of NLP that Carl teaches is TNLP, transformative NLP. He hadn't put the T in when I was there, so that's, that, that's, a, new, that's a new letter uh, that's part of the organization. And T also stands for trauma. We learned a lot about trauma at NLP Marin, a tremendous amount of, of trauma through different lenses, psych psychology lenses, quantum mechanics lenses. It, it was a very interesting way to look, family constellation lens. It was a very interesting way to unpack trauma through these different um, fields, if you will. When we think about individuals who are resistant to self-awareness, when we think about individuals who are challenged with self-awareness, challenged with accountability, challenged with taking feedback, receiving feedback, incorporating feedback, challenged with having difficult conversations with their bosses, with their peers, with their direct reports. Where does the role of trauma come in? When you said um, T stands for trauma, in my head I was saying word. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love it so much. Yeah, we're all walking around with our own lived traumas that we've experienced in this lifetime. And then there's, you know, the traumas that we've inherited from others. And mm. gosh, when I when I think about this actually goes back to the patriarchy mm -hmm. <laughs> and um righteousness. And, you know, being in a stance where, you know, it's like, I know all the answers and I'm right. I, I think the other aspect to um, cultivating self-awareness is just this knowing that we've inherited, you know, self-righteousness. We've inherited all of these concepts of right or wrong. And truly... Mm -hmm. The learning, the insight here is that we as each individual human, we have our own unique perspectives. And that's actually with going back to NLP, it's the study of language. 
neuro-linguistic programming. It's the study of language because any word, even belonging, it might mean something different to you, Rajkumari, as it might mean for me. Sure. As a lived experience. Sure. I was just asked yesterday in coaching one of uh, my clients, a senior leader, um, I asked her what the definition of a leader is. And she responded with, well, what's, what's, what is the definition, Rajkumari? What, what is the definition of, lead, of being a leader? And I said, whatever it means to you. Because mm -hmm. it's different for every single person. That's right. And what we had to unpack were her core values. And I said, that's the definition of a leader for mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. are your core values. Mm -hmm. Now, does that align with the team and, you know, your executables and the OKRs that you have to, you know, fulfill? Um, that's a whole different conversation. You have now used the term righteous twice, and then you use self-righteous. You said we have inherited self-righteousness. We have inherited concepts of right and wrong. This is so profound, Jenny. You then talk about language and how language is I'm going to use these words, these are not your words, bias. It is also reductionist. When I'm going to quote directly from Jitu Krishnamurti, who says, the moment you call a bird a bird, the bird is no longer a bird. The moment that I distill something to the answer that I think it is, it can no longer be anything else other than what I think it's going to be. And it remains in that state for me. Which then creates boxes and containers and constraints and maybe even prisons for other people through my eyes. That person never gets to be anything other than how I see them. Talk a little bit about where we have arrived politically in the world, in this country specifically. Given all that I just mentioned, and how the polarization that we are experiencing is tendriling throughout our workforce. Yes, and I'm so glad that you brought up the concepts of wokeness and anti-wokeness in our pre-conversation. Hmm. That's sort of where my lens on, you know, righteousness was was coming from and self-righteousness, right and wrong. Um, and that's where we go back to language. And language is a tertiary hmm. expression of whatever our experience is. Mm. And beautiful. so <laughs> when we come back to the word woke, mm. what does that feel like internally? What, does, what is the essence of the word? It's truly an opening of the heart mm. and tuning into what is present in the moment. Mm -hmm. No right or wrong, just... What is the experience in the moment? 
in traditional Chinese medicine, different organs hold different emotions according to that field. For example, the liver holds anger, or the kidneys hold fear, or the spleen stomach hold worry. The heart holds joy, according to TCM, traditional Chinese medicine. According to neurobiology and affective neuroscience, <laughs> the heart holds heartbreak. The heart is able to mourn. But what is so beautiful about the process of mourning from an affective neuroscience lens is there are three neurochemicals that are invited forward during that process. During the morning, there is a release of cortisol from the stress of what has occurred. And typically, it's some form of loss, whether it's layoffs or a death of a loved one, right? And anywhere in between. And after that period of mourning, we move into connection. We, knew, we move into presence or accompaniment, and that secretes oxytocin and endogenous opioids. So we have a buildup, a bridge, a reconnection through community. Mm. When I cannot take feedback, when I am not able to be accountable, when I am not able to integrate and process information given to me about how I'm showing up with my team, I'm not able to mourn. Mm. When you talk about this concept of awakening, awakening is the birthright of a human. Awakening is about understanding our trajectory in life, what our passions are, our purpose. You had talked about inherited concepts of right and wrong, inherited patternings generationally. What is no longer serving me that I have put up with as a child, that I have endured as a child, that is no longer serving me as an adult in my role? How do you contend with this as the head of people at 15-5? How do you hold heartbreak? How do you honor heartbreak? How do you honor heart-centeredness? Mm while trying to make sure that the investors are getting their money's worth after getting $50 million. When I th think about holding heart-centered space mm. for the organization, what is so important about this work is creating a ethereal space, mm. an intentional space for people to be able to heal from loss, to heal from heartbreak. And so an exercise that I have done with my team, we've had to unfortunately run two layoffs within mm -hmm. the past year. Yeah. And the exercise that I've done with my team, whenever we open up this project, I'm opening up the container for the team emotionally around how can we show up for each other in these next few months as we're planning this project and executing upon, upon this project? Right. How might we support one another? And so there's a 
creator of the container for the people team, mm -hmm. whoever's involved. And then there's a creator, um, a creation of a container for the wow. broader organization as wow. well. And so I always hold this intentional space, the safety web that I like to call it. Wow. You know, to catch people, you know, because there these are definitely traumatic events that are happening through yeah. tech organizations right now. Mm -hmm. So it's people are losing their jobs and mm -hmm. it's heartbreak. There's heartbreak. And so how might organizations create those containers for heartbreak? For heartbreak. That's right. And, and and to normalize and even operationalize moving through heartbreak. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, we are humans that have hearts. That's right. And they break every now and then. That's right. And we are now positioned as a collective in the state of a world that is incredibly challenging to exist within. Mm -hmm. And there's heartbreak everywhere I look. Mm -hmm. There's a USA Today poll from March 2023 that asked Americans how they feel about the word woke. I want to come back to woke and anti-wokeness. 56% said it had a positive association. That's so, in my mind, that's such a low number. 39% um, it had such a negative association. We are divided as a country when it comes to whether it is considered an insult to be described as woke. 40% say it's an insult. 32% say it's a compliment. When I am a leader in an organization, and my team is unhappy with me. I want to know. I want to know how I'm showing up. I want the feedback. And then I want to be taken, taking accountability on how I'm showing up because I want to create psychological safety. The only way that I get there is through self-reflection. Mm -hmm. Isn't being woke just being self-aware? It is. It is about having self-awareness of your behaviors and the impact of your behaviors. The term woke is actually derived from the AAVE, the African-American Vernacular English. I didn't even know that that existed, and I feel a sense of chagrin. The phrase, stay woke, has been present in AAVE since the 30s, since the 1930s. In many ways, it referred to an awareness of social and political issues affecting African Americans in a white America. This brings us to yet another paradigm of oppression. And it starts to make sense, for me at least, why that USA Today poll is polling in the way that it is. I want to see if we can kind of play with an example of how this polarized lens impacts the workplace. Jason Fried, CEO of Basecamp, went viral in 2021 for a policy that Basecamp had implemented where they said no more societal or political discussions at work. Poof. They did not have the Israeli-Gaza war going on at the moment, did they? I don't know if I should have said that or not, but I did. Anyway, what the fuck? I just went there. <laughs> wow. Dang. Yeah, that definitely requires a dang. There's a blog post entitled Changes at Base Camp that anyone can look 
back up online. But in the blog post, he writes the following. When you get to a certain employee count, there is no pleasing everyone. You can't. There are too many unique perspectives, experiences, and individuals. We all want different somethings. Some slightly different, some substantially. Companies, however, must settle the collective difference, pick a point, and navigate towards somewhere lest they get stuck circling nowhere. I am having a lot of emotion come up as I read that. What is coming up for you? <laughs> and how do you hold that at 15.5 when you have topics that are on opposite ends of the spectrum for individuals that are part of your workforce? Mm -hmm. Well, my reaction to that move at base camp to stop any talk about social or political issues, to me, is a form of tone policing mm. and gaslighting. To me, it is a form of silencing, mm. especially when I think about it from the lens of being an employer. We ask so much of our employees from the lens of dedicating their life force to work. Yeah. We spend an estimated one-third of our lives working. Wow. And 40 hours a week-ish, you know, more. some companies require more. That is a lot of our waking hours and life force that we're dedicating to work. And so to expect that employees can't bring what's going on in their lives to the workplace is unacceptable to me particularly coming from the lens of if you want to have people show up as their whole self at work, if that's sort of the expectation that is set is that you can be your whole self, that comes with societal points of view, that comes with political points of view. But that also comes with trauma, Jenny. Yes. So how do we as organizations hold this lens of bring your whole self to work if we're not providing trauma-aware, trauma-informed, trauma-engaged resources, mm -hmm. courses, classes, where, where does that duty fall? Mm -hmm. 100%. Yes, that absolutely requires um, training from not only the people in HR teams, but also the executive team. The executive team really needs to get clear on what is their stance. So with 15.5 specifically, um, I'll give an example that we were headquartered in the Bay Area mm. when we were founded in over a decade ago. And we started hiring across the US, mm -hmm. and including places in North Carolina. Uh, we acquired a company that was headquartered in Indiana. And so we started to really have to get clear on how do we help mm. all of our people belong to 15.5. And we're not just this liberal woo-woo company. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so there's definitely been a cultural shift as every single human you add to the organization adds yeah. their own personal value set, adds right. their own trauma. Right. And so we as an executive team came clear that we needed to have a more secular stance mm. as an organization, right? And personally, that resonates with me. I have a very secular 
background mm. of just being open to accepting all humans as they are. And so I'm grateful that we have these spaces. We have employee resource groups as well um, that people can go to. And, you know, we have a Black Employee Collective. We have an um, Asian Pacific Islander group, mm -hmm. um, a pride group. Mm -hmm. um, and so these are safe spaces for individuals to bring up topics um, that they want to connect on. Right. So creating communities within communities. Correct. Yeah. Bringing this conversation to a close. You have a small one who's almost three. He is adorable. I got to meet him today. What hope do you have for your little one and all the little ones who are growing up in a time of extreme pain, extreme heartbreak, extreme rage, extreme emotion, extreme despair? who will most likely find himself in an organization. What do you, what do you hope for that little one's future? Mm. Ah, that is such a charged question. And I reflect on this a lot. My hope um, for my little one is that he can be the heart warrior that my friend called that that was what he was going to be <laughs> as he was in the womb, was that this child is a heart warrior. And what that looks like mm. is standing up for justice, standing mm. up for human rights and standing up for whatever it is that he'll care about. Mm -hmm. And the other element is the self-awareness. It comes back to self-awareness of one's feelings and emotions, self-awareness of impact of behavior on others, which is right now, well, there are a lot of teaching moments around that. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, that's just, that's my hope is just a, a self-aware, heart-centered generation that comes to be and can make a difference and impact on the world. I put all my hope in those generations. Every ounce of hope that I hold in my heart, I offer to them. Jenny, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. It's been such a pleasure to listen to your words of wisdom, perspicacity, and incredible insight. Mm, thank you, Rajkumari. My heart is open and I'm feeling joy pour mm. through right now. Thank you for the opportunity. Of course, amazing. That was Rajkumari Niyogi and Jenny Yang. Up next, what we can learn from South African race relations and how they relate to modern times with Lovelyn Nwadei. Visit us at podcast.ibelong.com for all the ways to watch and listen to our show. You've been listening to Then, Now, and Tomorrow, an I Belong original series produced by Flowship. Today's episode was executive produced by Rajkumari Niyogi, produced by Mike Giordani, edited by Ramiro Gava, mixed by Alex Roses, original music by Dario Valderrama, production assistance by Tiari Boutte and Pili Melendez. Thank you so much for tuning in.